Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. Fisher's Mayor Scott Fatness has delivered his annual State of the City address one day after that. The mayor agreed to sit down and have a podcast conversation with me. That happened during the morning of Thursday, May 23rd. I'm in the office of Fisher's Mayor Scott Fadness. Uh, mayor, it's, thanks for the Diet Coke, and thank you for inviting us into your office today. Sure. Um, we are recording this the day after your State of the City address. Uh, by the way, congratulations on winning another term in office. We're assuming no Democrats will be appointed. That's been their message so far publicly, and we don't know of any third party or independent or libertarian. So assuming those things, congratulations on Thank another you. four-year term. Thank you. I appreciate it. The uh, crux of your comments in the State of the City Address, centered, your comments centered on, on regionalism. And um, you cited some very stark statistics where Indiana and the Indy metro area fare pretty badly. Uh, I even heard some comments saying, why is the mayor trashing Indiana? Why is the mayor trashing Indianapolis? What I took away from that is that you're trying to be honest about the the issues that any third party would see if they were thinking about uh, coming to Indianapolis. Some of the issues for those who didn't hear the, the speech the rate of smoking, 6% increase. And I have a, an emotional because my father died of lung yeah. cancer. Um, mental health, poverty, wages, the amount of wages we pay in this part of the state. Right. So my question to you is, since you brought those up, and I'd seen those statistics, but quite frankly, never saw them presented together right. in the way you put that together. How would your view of regionalism better address those problems? So I can understand people saying to some extent, uh, why is Scott Fadness trashing Indiana or central Indiana? But that is not the intent. The intent is to take an honest eye towards what our challenges are, roll up our sleeves and fix them. The fact that I don't articulate what those challenges are doesn't mean those challenges aren't there. So our mantra here in the city of Fishers is always to look directly into the challenges that we have, be honest and open about them, and then collaborate and go fix them. What I realized as I started to study these issues over the last couple of years, and this is really, this speech has been um, a year or so in the making of just truly understanding what our region needs to do and what the challenges we have. I've come to the conclusion, I said in my speech, no one individual city can go fix these kind of chronic issues that we have in our region or in our state. But collectively as a region, I believe that we have the opportunity to do that. Now, the difference that I have as opposed to some people, some people would say, well, you listed all these kind of public health chronic issues. What we need to do is create a bunch of government programs to address specific issues. That's what we need to go out and do right now. We need to dump a bunch of money into that. I take a different approach to it, and um, I probably didn't emphasize this enough yesterday, but uh, I think we need to grow our way out of our problems. And what I mean by that is we have to transform central Indiana. We have to strengthen our economy. We have to invest strategically that will bring in more people, more companies, more quality of life so that uh, we grab the next generation of talented people and have them come here and stay here. And by doing that, what happens is you increase – your income because you have more good paying jobs coming here. So therefore more income tax revenue comes in. 
you facilitate or foster additional property tax base growth, which grabs more property tax revenue. And then hopefully if the economy is that strong and employment becomes uh, a shortage, there's a shortage of qualified people for jobs, then your hope is, is that wages start to climb up. And then if wages climb up, additional income tax revenue comes in. What that does is it creates a model long-term for new revenue for government then to go invest in these programs that might be able to help some of the chronic issues that we have. Um, that's, that's the intent behind this whole legislative push that we did this spring was to create this opportunity to put some collective resources together to go address these issues. And it's a paradigm shift for everyone to think like this. And so I wasn't surprised that we weren't successful at the legislature this first go-around, but, you know, I'm committed to seeing it through. Of course, you have Todd Houston, our local state representative, who's now the co-chair of the Ways and Means Committee, so he has a leadership position uh, within that House uh, body. So that uh, certain, even with that, it was difficult to make that argument. But I, I want to get to that legislation in a moment. Before I do, I want to get back to this uh, whole issue of what employers look for when they by the way there's some work going yeah, on sorry, they, they, I think they mow every morning outside of my office and that's okay you know just they're mowing they're doing that's good right. things and uh, they have to get their window with, between the rains yeah, we're having no at kidding. the time we record this but um, you argue that you're that when these employers look to locate they're going to look at all these bad statistics that you put in they're going to know all of this they're going to see it whether right. we like it or not um, so and your other point is, is something I've heard before, and I think it is accurate from other reading I've done, uh, that when employers look to locate, they look at a region. They don't necessarily look at a state or a wide area. For instance, we wanna, we've decided we want to go to the Indianapolis metro area. Where do we go within the metro area? But you've got to sell the metro area before you even get to the point where they look at fishers. So, and this is an important point. From my experience in economic development, what happens is they'll identify regions that in this, they might identify these regions based on proximity to who knows what. So they'll list a series of regions. What gets you off of the list from a regional perspective are the things that I identified yesterday. So when they hire site selectors, when a company's looking at things, they're going to research this information and they're going to know what's the quality of your workforce, what's your educational attainment. And that'll get you shortlisted or taken off the list very quickly. It isn't about the brochure that Fishers or Carmel has or Indianapolis has nothing to do with that. Once they've said, okay, you've made the shortlist based on these metrics, whether it's a, a cost environment, talent, quality of life, whatever it might be, then they're going to come to this region and then it becomes, then it quickly transitions to a real estate discussion. So what buildings are already here that make sense for me? What land is available for me to build? Those companies are at that point are relatively agnostic as to whether they locate in Carmel, Fishers, Indianapolis, Greenwood, what have you. They're really just at that point looking at real estate. That's it. So from my perspective, we all do a pretty good job when it gets down to the real estate conversation. We can all have those conversations and we can put our best foot forward. Where we have to collaborate on is tackling these regional issues that get us on the short list so that we have more at-bats with companies that from out of, uh, out of our region. And I can't fix that myself. 
Indianapolis can't fix it themselves. We have to work collectively to drive those issues, to take care of those problems, so that instead of one every four months in terms of a, a company looking from outside, you have 15 companies looking uh, every month at your region, which betters the odds for every community to see growth. I've read a little bit about this, and there are some localities who do it better than others. But what I have, I've seen a model where uh, this regionalism has been done, but yet it gets down to that area. Okay, we've sold the region. How do we decide which locality within that region will receive this 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 um, set of jobs or whatever the the economic development project might be? Is there, and I don't know how to gently put this, but a lot of these regions that have been very successful in, in this regionalism concept have made an agreement saying, okay, you know, we're fishers, Noblesville, sometimes you're going to get some, sometimes yeah. we will. We'll help sell the region. Once it comes down to what part of the region you want to locate in, we're all going to have, if we're all competing, you know, cutthroat at that point, it's we're all going to go down together. Should Should we find a way to to not beat each other up once we get down to that we've picked the region part. I, I think the art of this is to collaborate on the things that are appropriate to collaborate on and compete on the things that are also appropriate to compete on. I have no problem with each community competing uh, you know, vigorously for opportunities that come our way. I think that helps sharpen our, our edge, so to speak. Um, but the problem is today it's lopsided. We compete on those things, but we don't collaborate on the things that we should be collaborating on. So once a company identifies that they're looking at our region, I think every community should put their very best foot forward when it comes to what they can offer to that individual. And that way, you know, that company has a number of options uh, to locate. But the problem is we're not collaborating uh, to the degree that we need to in building a better product collectively and also speaking with one collective voice to the country and to the globe about who we are as a region. I want to get into this legislation you mentioned earlier. You did talk about that in your State of the City address. Um, you basically summarized what the bill would do. And uh, I want to drill down just a little bit on that because you said it would take a more regional approach to revenue streams. Mm-hmm. So I get when you hear revenue streams, people start thinking, are you thinking of a tax increase? Are you thinking yeah. of lowering it here, higher there? So when you discuss revenue streams, are you redirecting tax money already in the system? Would there have to be some tax increases to implement this? I know all the details may not be out there, but tell us what your vision is as yeah. to how that would work. Uh, it would be a set of tools of new revenue streams. So this would be a new tax. Um, if you were to redistribute the current money, that's in central Indiana. Uh, if you look at us against other regions, all you're doing is lowering our ability to provide a quality of life here in, in central Indiana. Uh, the legislation would have allowed you to have the opportunity a 1% food and beverage tax, um, a 1% income tax, and the original language that we proposed also had a 1% sales tax uh, concept in it. Which would be local fairly, sales tax. that's a new concept. For that's Indiana. a new concept, yeah. yeah. So that one, that one is truly the transformative opportunity. And that was taken out of the bill fairly quickly by the state legislature. Um, if, you, if a local community opted into any one of those, uh, they would be able to keep 50% of whatever they collected in their local community to address the ongoing issues we have like potholes and things of that nature. The other 50% would be sent to this regional entity, this bucket of money, if you will. 
And the chief elected officials from each community that's a part of that region would then decide how to invest that money. Now, what's interesting about that in the way that we drafted it was the money could only be spent on what we would consider transformational, multi-jurisdictional capital projects, brick and mortar, not programs. This isn't a let's go create 57 new government programs. It's about investing in the quality of place that we have here in central Indiana. Indiana. It's about creating a better version of ourselves and what we have today. So for instance, and these are just illustrative examples, the White River. The White River, people have been talking about now for some time about this, you know, redeveloping the White River, which is a wonderful concept with no funding. Um, and it also crosses multiple jurisdictions. Noblesville, Carmel, Fishers, Indianapolis. We have no framework or structure to be able to do transformative projects that could literally change the trajectory of our city, our metropolitan area today. Now, if this were available to us, we could come alongside the philanthropic community, which is very strong here in central Indiana, and the private sector and say, you know what, we're going to invest $300, $400 million dollars Uh, into a project and and really be able to start moving the needle for central Indiana. This is something that I'm very passionate about. When, When you think about trying to sell a company, a large corporate headquarters, on why they should come to central Indiana, what are the marquee projects? What are the aspirations that we have that would tell them this is this is something that we want to be a part of. This is a storyline that we want to have some chapter in. Um, we need a framework to do that, and it has to live beyond personalities. Mayor Hogsett and I get along, <clears throat> which is great. What happens when we're not here and somebody else is, and they don't get along because of partisan politics or maybe literally it comes down to personalities? Our residents deserve a better structure than that so that it lives beyond any two or three personalities. Yeah, and the White River, that's interesting because you talk about philanthropic. Uh, we have Connor Prairie here in Fishers that borders the White River. I know yeah. Connor Prairie has been much more integrated, I think, in recent years. Norman Burns has been a big reason for that yeah, absolutely. with the school system and with the city. So there are certainly opportunities there. Now, let me ask you, you've already kind of answered part of a question I was going to ask, so let me ask it another sure. way. You still have to have the buy-in from all of these municipalities with the people who are in charge at the time to get this enacted. That's correct. How do your fellow mayor, you and Joe Hogsett, uh, the mayor of Indianapolis, have discussed this and appear to be uh, on the same page? What about you, the other mayors that would need to be uh, involved? What has been the reaction so far? I think there's a, I mean, as I chair the Central Indian Conference of Elected Officials, which are all the chief elected officials from around, I think there's a general recognition that we can't do it alone, that they can't do it alone. And there is a lot of goodwill and a lot of good relationships, and I think a lot of good servant leaders in the in the mayor's roles today around central Indiana. And uh, this is why these these types of initiatives are hard. If it was just my city, it would be a lot easier to go figure out how to do this, and it still wouldn't be easy. Um, this is why I'm committed to the next four years. My next term is I've got to go out and work with not only my own community, but the greater Indianapolis area to try to bring everybody along and convince them that this is the right thing to do. I'm encouraged to date in terms of the leadership and understanding and insight that I've seen from other local elected officials around central Indiana. So um, 
I think there is an opportunity, but it's a fragile opportunity. I mean, if the, if the personalities change, if the dynamics change significantly, that that reality may become more difficult to accomplish. Now, we talked about revenue streams and tax increases, and maybe this wouldn't be necessary if you, the, the uh, paradigm you talked about ever comes across, but the Indy Chamber of Commerce is once again pushing the idea of a commuter tax. Uh, you spend a lot of time with the state house. It would take state legislation to get that, excuse me to get that done. Uh, where do you think that stands now? Is there really any chance that would happen? Well, you know, I'm really kind of fundamentally disappointed in the Indy Chamber on this issue. Um, we have an opportunity to do something that's actually functional and transformative for the future. And we continue going back to this concept that's really pretty elementary in nature. It's just, it's antiquated and it's not what's going to move our region forward. I understand that they have to be an advocate for their, for their individual city, but it's not an actual solution to the problems that are before us. And I've had these conversations with the Indy Chamber over and over and over again. And I, I hope they come alongside and realize that the future is not in the current proposal that they are continuing to push, but rather in a different scenario because it will be a complete political uh, stalemate in what they're trying to push. I heard you tell a story at the State of the City address. I've heard you tell several times before. It's about speaking to an elementary school class mm -hmm. and the students you ask them what about yeah. your city give me and you get some good suggestions that's really good and you're amazed by that then as that's going along you have the one boy in the back who raises his hand and says yesterday i saw a tiger in my yard <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know it seems like I, I i hear from a lot of adults who say that they see tigers <laughs> in their yard uh, yeah I, I, I won't name any names but uh, I really want to ask you, I've heard you tell this story. What are you trying to say there? What are you trying to communicate with that story? Well, I, what I try to share with people, I guess sometimes when you take a complex idea like we were talking about yesterday and, um, and I want to drive it home, I sometimes go back to my experiences with kids. I don't know, maybe because in my own life, I... Uh, my wife will tell you I probably live in the clouds more than I should, so I, I'm always thinking about something. And my four-year-old has this unbelievable ability to just level me with like some matter-of-fact statement. And so sometimes when I think I'm getting too academic or too abstract in a talk or in an idea, I like to bring it back to kids because when I talk to them, I'm stunned by just how direct and honest and like to the point kids can be. So when I bring up my experiences with elementary kids, it really is to that point. It's almost somewhat um, self-deprecating in that I go in there with these lofty notions and they just, you know, <laughs> take me down a notch. Well, you'll, as you go through parenthood, you'll have more of that, oh, trust yeah. me, and in many different ways. Just like uh, it was before the state of the city, you know, I was getting ready the other morning and, um, you know, I was telling Anna every morning getting two kids to daycare is always, as everybody knows, is a nightmare. But I was getting ready and uh, thinking about my state of the city speech and uh, I was telling uh, Lincoln, my four-year-old, that I had a big speech uh, that day. He's getting his car seat, and he kept grabbing my sleeve. He goes, Dad, Dad, Dad. And I go, what? And he goes, um, today I'm selling lemonade at my school, and if if you bring lots of monies, then we win and I get candy. And he goes, do not forget the money. <laughs> so he does not 
<laughs> you know, he did not care one bit about my big speech, which yeah, is fine. Parenthood brings you down. Yes, several absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk about Mike Reuter. You you uh, presented the key to the city to him right at, before the, you gave your yeah. speech. And I've known Mike for, for many years. I know he has worked with the school system and he's... He's uh, navigated through some tough economic and, and, and budget times for the, the, the school corporation. I was covering the school board when some of that happened. I know he does contract work for a lot of localities, including Fishers. Does a lot of um, income projections for you and other services. Talk about uh, Mike Reuter and why you made the decision to present the key to the city to Mike Reuter. You know, um, we all learn differently. And I, I have to tell you, I have always where I learn is from uh, smart people around me and, and trying to gain as much knowledge as I can from them. And Mike Reuter was one of those people early on in my career who just, I would sit down and um, pick his brain and I would just learn as much as I could about public finance. And he really taught me the vast majority of what I know about public finance. What I respect about Mike is when he and I would go down to the state house to advocate for our kids school funding Nobody was going to beat Mike about the numbers. So a lot of people like to speak in rhetoric, which drives me crazy. But Mike would go there, and when someone would say something in his polite kind of way, would pull out a spreadsheet and go, well, actually, that's not, that's not correct. And uh, it was just fun to watch. And um, I think the other story about Mike that people don't really realize is he's been the constant in that central office through – multiple administrations of superintendents and school boards and things of that nature. He was a guy behind the scenes that was very much making sure that that school kept running in the right direction. And um, I just think he's been a tremendous asset to this community over the years. And um, he deserves a key to the city and more, in my opinion. I've covered uh, the teachers union and school board negotiations in several localities throughout my career of covering news. And a lot of the biggest arguments that would happen would be what the real numbers were. Right. And there were some school corporations that played with the numbers. You know, I, yeah. I don't know. Some did, sure. some did. But one thing about Mike is he has gained the respect of the local uh, teachers sure. association. So they go into negotiations and they know the money they have. It's how do we divide it up and, and how do we handle that? That doesn't happen everywhere. Yeah, I, uh, and I learned that from Mike. So for us, you know, internally, sometimes I struggle with this where people want to hide uh, the numbers from each other from a department standpoint. It drives me crazy. Um, we have a fiscal plan, and I'd be happy to give it to anybody, fire union, anybody, and let them see what the numbers are. And I learned that uh, from Mike. I want to move to something else because the last couple um, of Board of Works and Public Safety meetings, you've proposed a board work session to discuss 5G technology. Is that still set yes. up for next week? Yeah. Because um, you're talking about how it's going to roll out of the neighborhood. You've already done some uh, yeah. some work on, on city property and how that's going to work, let's say, in the downtown area and some other areas. So could you just explain to the public uh, what's going on with this whole 5G project? Sure. Well, the evolution of cellular technology has kind of evolved from the big towers everyone sees, the 150 foot 200 towers to these 15 to 20 foot towers and what they call the 5g network and the, just to be clear we're using a 4g network for the most part that's now. correct that's yeah. correct yep and 5g is where everyone's going i mean that is going to be the next generation of technology when it comes to cellular the challenge with it is the proximity the radius if you will that it actually can serve is very small so it could only be 500 to 1000 feet potentially for each one of these towers 
the long-term vision, I think, for a number of carriers is that they would have these towers in every neighborhood so that you would get to a point in your home where instead of having to pay the cable bill, you would literally just have a wireless uh, bill like you do for your cell phone, but it would also cover one gig one gigabit internet access to your entire house. Which is huge, by which the is, way. Yeah, which yeah. is wireless. Mm-hmm. So people would love that. And on one, one, one regard, they would love it because now you just have one bill. Everything's there, your cell phone, your cable, your internet at home, all of it. And it's all wireless. The caveat to that is the technology would require that all of these towers be located within your neighborhood. So now you're talking about, if you've seen them along 116th Street, they're the green towers with a box next to them. They're probably 20, 30 feet tall. Um, Imagine having a number of those in each and every neighborhood. Today, the law says that they can build these uh, without really any kind of interference from the city on any main thoroughfare that's not in a residential area. What we have in place is they can't go into a residential neighborhood uh, without authority from the Board of Works. And so what we're trying to figure out is what, how do we strike a balance between, hey, residents would love to be able to just have one bill and it'd be all wireless and it's, and it's coming. This technology is gonna be what people are dependent upon in the future. And the aesthetic desire of the residents to say, I don't want these towers in my neighborhood. That seems like a collision course that will have a lot of consternation to it. So we want to be thoughtful about what kind of policies we can put in place. And the other thing about this is if you create a very difficult uh, regulatory environment for these folks to deploy these towers, they have a finite amount of capital. They'll decide to go to some other community and deploy this uh, if they can, because everyone right now are, they're basically competing for the dollars to deploy this capital. So uh, I don't have any great answers on this yet, but the Board of Works really wants to kind of roll up our sleeves and be thoughtful about the right balance to be struck here. Yeah, you know, to me, 5G technology will revolutionize how we get technology, television, our cell phones, uh, computer networks. We'll no longer be tethered to wires. This is a big technological change, and it will be a very high-speed environment. But And I thought that's what people would be commenting to me about when I started writing about it. But no, people are all concerned about what are perceived to be health risks. Now, I've tried to work on this, and I'm going to have you comment on it. I I couldn't find a clear answer. There's not a lot of – there's quite frankly not a lot of science on this yet because it's fairly new. So my question to you is, do you and your staff feel comfortable – that um, the health risks are not to the point where it would be a problem because this is new technology and you want to be on the cusp of it because for the reasons we mentioned. But are there any health risks you know of? Well, it, to be honest with you, we've depended a lot upon the FCC and their you know due diligence before this technology was licensed and rolled out. I do know that I've had a few uh, residents email concerns. I've also read a New York Times article recently where they said that Russian uh, Russia was funding misinformation campaigns about 5G deployment in order to slow down the deployment of it in the U.S. so that Russia could beat the U.S. to this type of deployment. So there is a lot of noise out there. You know, when we get those questions, we defer them back to the FCC, which is really the regulatory. None of these technologies would be allowed to be out in the public if it hadn't gone through a federal process and approved at a local level, we're really not equipped to be able to 
comment on the health factors, and we rely upon our federal government to, to license those. As a former radio guy, whatever you might think of the FCC as a body of appointed officials, uh, their technical people are pretty good. I, I will That much I will say. Um, just a few days ago, uh, the city staff issued a news release about the summer road construction projects. Uh, State Road 37 is that big elephant in the room. That's yes. going to start later in the summer. But you have lots of other construction projects going on, some setting up for 37, other really, others right. really not related to that. Just just talk about the, um, the road construction season, uh, why it will be a little different this year. Well, we'll be busy in, in preparation for 37. So we're, we're cleaning up uh, the remainder of Allisonville Road, which I know has been a long project for a lot of folks over on the west side. Uh, but what we hope to wrap that up here midsummer. Um, we've had some really good success and a lot of progress at uh, 126 and Reynolds Drive. So that roundabout's coming along pretty nicely, actually. Um, 96th Street, we're clearing and, and working to get that project underway. That's four lanes between Lantern to Cumberland. And then um, later this summer, you're going to see South Street uh, start, which is a pretty large project down here in downtown. And then, honestly, we're, we're pumping a lot of money into road resurfacing and rehabilitation. So Fall Creek uh, Road, or excuse me, Brooks School Road from Fall Creek to 116th Street, that'll be underway. There, there's some significant repaving in Hamilton proper and, and a number of other neighborhoods as well. Kincaid Drive is getting redone. So you're going to see a lot of kind of just road resurfacing work being done as well. And, and that's something we're going to continue to try to beef up each and every year, um, to try to tackle some of our road issues. And uh, uh, people ask me sometimes, and some of this road resurfacing, especially on the neighborhoods, will be coming from that uh, $25 per vehicle the, wheel tax. Uh, that's Is that a correct? huge part of it, absolutely. Uh, Deputy Mayor for Noblesville, Steve Cook, uh, yeah. had a lot of fun with you yes. at your uh, State of the City address because, uh, frankly, Fishers does not have a venue that will has enough space to take the demand. We had more than 700 people there uh, to watch your speech. When do you think Fishers will have a facility capable of uh, handling the state of the city? I don't know. You know, that um, those types of facilities can be very expensive. Uh, That particular project for Noblesville was a public-private partnership where I believe the city was involved in that project to the tune of about $6 million dollars. Um, and so any type of facility like that in Fishers, you would anticipate another public-private deal. And, um, and so, so far, the market really – although, I, you know, it's great to have that venue, to be able to go have seven or 800 people. And it's just a few blocks away. just a few blocks Fishers, away, and for $6 million, I'll, I'll go up there and eat a little crow <laughs> for uh, being there. No, um, we have yet to have – if this is any indication, the market – Residents will tell you, hey, we, we really need one of those. But the market, the business, the private sector, I don't think I've ever had a single person or company come in here in my tenure and say, we would really like to build a facility that could entertain a thousand people. I've never had any hotel or anyone else ever ask or utter those words. And so I think there's a need, and I think we're going to see this with uh, the hotel and everything downtown and uh, what First Internet Bank's doing. I think there's a need for probably that three to 400-room space that's kind of nice and kind of unique. But it's so expensive to have a facility that can house up to 700 to 1,000 people. And, you know, we didn't want to turn anyone away that wanted to come hear about our city. And so 
our team here decided that, yeah, it's in Noblesville. Yeah, we'll get some grief for it. But at the end of the day, it's what's most important is that a Fisher's resident, if they want to come see it, they're not denied it because we just don't have enough room. Well, here's the most important question I'm going to ask you probably today. Will you go back to the city council and ask that the Riverside Intermediate School get their one goat? You know, uh, there. Uh, this is what I love about city council meetings. You just never know on any given night what's going to tee them off. And um, probably the part that uh, turned my head the most is at one point in the heated discussion, council member Peterson looked over to my table and said, well, Scott, you've had some experiences with cows back in your, uh, your teenage years. And I have no idea what he was referring to other than I'm a farm kid. Uh, but it sounded really bad. Uh, and uh, so, you know, who knows? I, I think I think it's great. I think it's awesome. I don't have the same concerns that some of my council members do, but I appreciate their due diligence. And I certainly hope that they allow these. I've been out there. I've seen the chicken coop. I think it's great. Um, I love when the schools are kind of stretching the boundaries of the educational experience and they have my vote, but uh, I understand why the council wants to do some due diligence. Well, I understand, uh, you know, animal, farm animal, uh, you know, you have to have some policies on that. I was surprised that the I, school didn't they, get When they were concerned goat. about whether it should just be one goat because the goat might be lonely, that's when I realized we were really <laughs> reached a new uh, level. Mayor, anything you want to add before we uh, wrap this up? Uh, I don't think so. That's well, it. Thank you, Mayor. Appreciate it. Uh, Mayor Scott Fadness, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks to Fisher's Mayor Scott Fadness for once again agreeing to be a guest on my podcast. This is the Larry in Fisher's podcast. My name is Larry Lannon, the host of the podcast series and the writer of the LarryInFishers.com local news blog, originating from Fishers, Indiana, the suburban city northeast of Indianapolis. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.